another episode of Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall, and today we'll be speaking with Jeff Steinhoff about his career in the government, leadership, mentorship, and I think you'll enjoy it. Here we are with Jeff Steinhoff. Jeff, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. I'm looking forward to, to hearing about all your expertise, the many years of uh, knowledge to, to share with us. So this is uh, exciting for me. So um, let's start off with, uh, you know, you, your career has spanned, uh, you know, several years here. So you're in the government most of your career, and in the last few years you've been at KPMG. And I think a lot of people are interested to know, if you want to be a successful in the government <laughs> accounting industry, so to speak, you know, is it better to be a government person? Is it better to be a private sector person, a mix of the both, or does it even matter? I mean, what, what have you found? I think that in the end, it's getting the knowledge, the appreciation for what government's all about. I certainly think it's advantageous for people to have been in government, to have seen firsthand the challenges that people face day to day. On the other side of the coin, um, having spent the last decade outside of government in the private sector uh, and have worked with the private sector during my 40 years in government, um, people are dedicated fully on both sides. Um, Certainly someone in the private sector that provides advice or performs audits for the government learns a tremendous amount, and uh, sometimes they learn it across a very broad expanse. So I think that both sides working together uh, is what makes things uh, better for all. Um, And I strongly believe there's no higher calling than serving one's nation. And I really admire and I applaud the folks in government today and uh, the other side of the coin I've seen in the private sector, um, more so than I expected when I first went to the private sector, Mm -hmm. that the folks really want the government to succeed. Right. They're very proud when it does succeed, Mm -hmm. and they don't want the projects to fail. It's not about profit and loss all the time. It's about making a difference. Right. I think both sides have that common view. Right, and I mean, I've definitely I've been on both sides. I was I started off in government myself, and mm-hmm. I'm in private sector now. But I mean, my feeling is I, I just want the project and the client yeah. and to succeed. I mean, otherwise, why would why would I be doing the work? Yes. Yes. You know, so I think we're all on the same page. Yes. So just sometimes folks think, you know, oh, would it be better to be in the government <laughs> side? Would it be better to be private? I mean, honestly, it's the same work in the end. And I think if you're dedicated, I agree with you fully. When we were first pulling putting together the plans for the CGFM program, mm-hmm. there were some folks that said, well, this should just be government people. Right. And I was in the federal government at the time, and that's all I had ever done. But I kind of rejected that premise then. And I said, hey, we're all in it together. We're all trying to get the same job done. And, uh, you know, people, when they work wherever they work, uh, the ones that succeed and the ones that make it difference really have got a higher purpose and um, I saw it when I was at GAO and before that in DOD for five years Uh, I saw people had a higher purpose and I I've learned in my decade plus in the private sector that the folks I'm honored to work with at KPMG they have a higher purpose well let me uh so I'd like to get into some of this because you know it's just amazing when you look back on your career. I'm just pulling out some highlights here, but so you you were the principal part of many of these initiatives here, pretty much all of these, uh, developing the FAM and FISCAM for audit, um, part of the CFO Act establishment, FMFIA, FFMIA establishment, A123, the CGFM certification you just spoke of, GIF MIP. I mean, all these key initiatives that affect all of us that do the work today, you know. And I guess my question is. You know, how did you get involved in these efforts? Were you pulled into them? Were you actively looking to contribute to them? I mean, it's just an amazing list there. So I was curious, how did you get involved in these things? I felt, Paul, I was very blessed uh, to work for GAO. 
because where J.O. is positioned, it's in the legislative branch. Um, you're working directly for policy makers. Um, the work I did was always in financial management. A lot of people at J.O. would like switch from area to area over their career. I stayed in the same one. So you develop a tremendous base of knowledge and you look across everything when you're at J.O. You look across everything. You're going to every entity and you're working in defense or you're working on the civilian side. And these agencies have different cultures, different ways of working. You're seeing all types of systems, all types of processes. And GAO makes recommendations to people. Um, and you're trying to get some result. I mean, um, people might not always accept this if they're on the receiving end of some of those reports. Right. <laughs> but you're trying to make a difference, really, and you're trying to make things better. And uh, so when you recommend to the Congress or recommend to a series of, of agencies, certain action steps, uh, and you get down to the root cause and how do you deal with some of these areas here, uh, it can lend itself to making a fairly substantial change. And that would be a legislative change. It's not an easy process. It takes many years. It took years and years and years to enact the CFO Act. Um, but these are bipartisan efforts. They're good government efforts. But you are positioned at GAO to work directly with the members of Congress and work directly with their staff. And they look to you to help them draft this stuff and lay this stuff out. If you look back at the CFO Act, um, and I, I will say before I, I go much farther, I was also very, very blessed, and this gets down to the whole issue of leading. You know, whether it's a mentor or a role model, whatever it is, I was just, I can't say how much I appreciate the opportunity I had to work with Elmer Stotts, a incredible legend. I think he was uh, selected as one of the 10 greatest public officials ever, career officials ever. Um, Chuck Bowser. David Walker, they were the three big bosses I had, so there was stability, there was core values on top that were impe impeccable, the integrity was the highest, they wanted to make a difference, they wanted to do what was right. So I was seeing that the whole time, and when you, let's just take, for example, um, the first time I worked on the law, it related to some work that we did at GAO, and it was looking at accounts receivable. Mm -hmm. And the folks came back, the team came back and said, well, they can't account for this stuff, and they can't do this and do that. And I remember asking a very simple question. Well, did we go further than that? Did we look at, well, what do they do to collect if they can't account for it? They can't account for collections, they can't account for, they don't really account for anything. Mm -hmm. But do, you, do we know whether they're collecting it? So we did another review to look at what practices they were following. Were they doing what a company would do? When you make a loan, you go to a credit service bureau and you tell them, right. you know, I made this loan and if you don't pay it back, you're kind of in deep trouble. If you default, uh, does the interest rate go up? and the government wasn't doing those things. So what we did was we proposed a lot of best practices right. for managing an asset. And the Hill looked at that and said, gee, this makes a lot of sense to us on a bipartisan basis. Right. So I got involved in drafting that law. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, you're in the right place where you're finding these things. You're, you, know, yeah. you guys are going out doing audits, doing reviews, you're seeing Things there's no controls or the accounting is not really being done properly, and now you can you have the audience that can make a difference. Yeah, you know to change that. But you're having you're trying to take that to a, another level. Right. You're trying to say, okay, the fact that you the accounting was kind of squirrely back in the, you know, 70s. Mm -hmm. Okay, a lot a lot of people say, okay, so what? <laughs> 
it gets down to whether you're collecting the money or not. And some of these programs are viewed as grant programs, although they were lending programs. Right. <laughs> and um, I learned how to write laws during that one. I just learned someone on the Hill, that one of the legal people, when they saw what I had, said, well, you did it all wrong. I learned how to set them up. And then worked on a number of other laws. But then when you got to the CFO Act, um, and you have to take advantage of whatever opportunity is there. Right. And I'm not saying I ever thought through these opportunities in advance, but there was this commission during the Reagan administration, the Grace Commission, and issued a series of reports. And uh, those reports call for many, many things, and some were highly controversial things. Um, and I was assigned to work for the committee the Senate committee right. for Senators Roth and John Glenn. A true honor. Both of these were gentlemen beyond belief and really heroes to me after I had, I had the opportunity to work with them. And uh, they had these package of proposals from the Grace Commission. Some of them were difficult from a political and a personal mm -hmm. standpoint to deal with. Mm. And um, I took these and said, well, there's a common thread. There's one report on financial management, but financial management bleeds through all these reports. Right. I briefed these two senators on that, and I put together a bill that it was S, I think it was 3620, I think was the number, 3620. Mm -hmm. And um, it provided this kind of framework for financial management. Um, and it also included some facets that could save the government money or get more uh, revenue in because you always want to have a positive score from the Congressional Budget Office on any bill. I learned that at a young age. Right. Not rocket science, <laughs> but if you don't know it, you don't know that. Absolutely. Because they're going to score it. If they say, well, this is going to cost money to do audits or do this or do that, Someone that opposes the bill will say, well, we don't want to spend any more money. But if you've got right. things in there, like we're going to collect more, and that will offset any cost, or this is the result. So I worked on that for a long, long time, and, and it, was, it was just a, a privilege, really, to go up to the Hill. I was up there for about eight months or so, full-time. Mm -hmm. And then I worked with these folks for years thereafter, and uh, Senator Roth was so kind when the bill was enrolled, he had me carried up to the president of the Senate. Um, and it didn't, but it took six, seven years. I mean, wow. I yeah. mean, and you had people <laughs> that didn't want to want to do it. Oh, sure. Yeah. But it's really seizing the opportunity. I, I yeah. would say I never sought something. I never sat down and said my game plan is to do this right yeah and let's get into that because I, I was curious you know do, do we you know we talk about i mean everybody wants to talk about their goals and every year you know you get your performance <clears throat> assessment what did i do this year did i reach my goal or what's my five or ten year goal i mean how would you describe the, your career as far as that goes i mean have you had these big visions of your head where you want it to be or you're seizing opportunities or some mix no i never really did okay um i think um it was kind of ingrained in me through my parents that you try to do the best one can do. Mm -hmm. You're not always going to win in life. Right. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you won't get justice or you won't get promoted or you won't be selected, but there's another day. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that I ever had um, any kind of strategy. Right. I stayed in the same unit Basically, it was renamed a bunch of times over the years. Right. But I stayed in the same unit, uh, most of the time on the same floor, you know, uh, with the same people for almost my entire 35 years right. at GAO. But you were always engaged or challenged. Or th your job was interesting and it fun was to interesting. you. Otherwise, why would you, you know? It was very interesting. Absolutely. You have to have a passion. Right. And no matter what one's doing, I saw a quote from Abraham Lincoln the other day, and it was very prophetic to me. It's whatever you are, be a good one. 
and uh, it's always doing the best one can do. And sometimes that's not good enough, mm-hmm. and you have to ex- accept, accept that. that that's the reality. Right, right. And everybody can bring value, and it's up to a leader or a manager to find how to bring value out of a person that maybe their talents aren't as great, mm-hmm. but they have talents in certain areas. They might have an attention to detail right. that's astoundingly good. But you want to find value in each person. You want to find what their passion is. I will acknowledge I have worked with some people, very, very few, but some people, where they're only happy when they're unhappy. (laughs) And if you constantly focus on the fact that they're unhappy, if you're their their manager, you're not going to get much out of them. If you accept the fact that no matter what it is, they're going to complain, you can get more out of that really? person, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, but I've met very few, but there are people that, you know, they're basically driven not by not being happy. And I think if one looks ahead, uh, although I I will acknowledge I didn't sit down and have this five-year plan, because right. I, I think if people do, they might get disappointed along the way. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad idea mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. I just did, didn't uh, didn't really do it. Um, I always felt I was progressing, right? Um, and uh, if I didn't feel I was progressing, then you have to step back and reconsider: Am I happy at the level that I'm at? Am I happy with what I'm doing? Uh, do I think I've got a higher purpose here? I think. Everybody, to a certain degree, there, there are probably a few that don't, but I think people are looking for a higher purpose. And, mm-hmm. and I found in my 40 years that I was privileged to work in government that that provided a higher purpose. Uh, I, I came in and graduated from college in 68. You had John Kennedy with, you know, the highest honor to serve in government, and, right. and you had all that. It, it was a high, high calling then. And I think we've lost some of that with all the employee bashing yeah. that's gone over over the past 40 years. And uh, I think that's just a shame, and I think it's just so counterproductive to serving the public day-to-day. Um, it just doesn't make much sense. I, I, I can't think of a business that would operate in that way where the CEO would say, gee, my employees, they're not any good, and my processes aren't any good. Their, their stock wouldn't trade very high the next day. Exactly. But for some reason, that's been the mantra going back decades. I'm not talking about current, you know. I'm talking about decades back. And people found it was good to run against Washington and kind of stick it to the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always saw the higher purpose uh, and I always had a passion for what I was doing. You, ha- you have to like what you're doing. You have to like the people you're working with. If you don't, you have to trust people or understand who not to trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't have those things, I don't think you're going to be particularly successful. Right. And it's probably best for the person to try something else. Right. No, I think everybody wants to feel they're progressing, that they're challenged. You know, when, when they start to stagnate, they question, why am I here? What am I doing? What's yeah. my purpose? You know, I think that's very important to have a purpose. And when, when you get in that position, or you've had a loss, in other words, you believe that you should have been promoted, or you're more qualified than someone else, well, mm-hmm. perhaps you are. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you are. I certainly had defeats. It wasn't like everything was perfect for me. No. And uh, you have to step back and say, okay, can I do something better or different? And you have to suck it up. You have to get over whatever your complaint is quickly. I'm not saying you can't be disappointed or in a funk for a little bit of time, but you have to get over that. You have to move ahead. And some people can't do that at all. And you have to be honest. You have to look within yourself and say, okay, you know, everybody thinks you're a little better than, than they are, okay? Sure. You have to look inside yourself, really, and say, okay, well, self, maybe, you know, 
there's a reason for this. Right. There's something I can learn from this, or there's some things I can improve on, of course. Yeah. So, and actually, speaking of which, you know, so some of the challenges in your career, or how about some risks that you may have taken that, uh, you know, you learned from, you know? I think, by nature, our profession are not what I would call high-end risk-takers, okay? <laughs> we have a certain mold. I'm not saying we don't take risk, but risk to us might not be risk to someone else. Sure. You know? Um, I would say when... Um, I pushed for the CGFM. Mm. There was a risk involved there. Although I didn't see it so much as a risk, I saw it as an opportunity. Right. But there were certainly people that were looking out for my best interest. And I admire them for that. I thank them for the support they provided to me. Um, that said don't go for this don't push this ahead right because the organization is somewhat slow to change people will beat you to death you'll never get it done you'll be frustrated at the end you're only going to be national president for one year right why don't you just go and give your speeches around the nation here you've got three or four initiatives here we started the sponsorship program that year. We went from $600 of sponsorship money the year before to something like 125000 Right. And now we're up, you know, whatever, millions or whatever sure. it is now. And why are you going to do it? Because, you know, the place doesn't change quickly. Right. And so that was a risk, I guess. I saw it as an opportunity, really. And... I saw it as a way to use some of the same techniques that were used when I worked on those laws. Because when you're working on a law, you've got to convince people it makes some sense. Right. And you've got to discuss it at a macro level most of the time and present the core values or what it's going to be about. And then you work on all the details later. And, and um, so that was a risk, I guess. I could have gone yeah. down basically as oh, this guy tried to do so-and-so and so-and-so, and he totally failed. He was unable to do anything. Um, but, again, I, I think you've got to take risk. Also think you have to force yourself to do what you don't want to do. Everybody's got strengths. Everybody's got weaknesses. Everybody's got areas that they're really gifted in, and they've got areas where it, it's... A lot of room to improve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what do you typically do? You do what you well, you're good at, like right? to do. Exactly. What you can do well. Mm -hmm. You oftentimes shy away from those other things. And the area that I think is very important is um, to just force yourself out of that mm -hmm. shell or force yourself. Um, I've read that the number one fear is public speaking. Number right. one fear. Well, when I read it a few years ago, the fear of death was 68% and the fear of public speaking was 93%. Yeah, that's hilarious. The fear of heights <laughs> is 89%. Yeah. Well, force yourself to do it. I've worked with people that are extremely articulate but they have a fear of doing that, so they shy away from doing that. They don't do it. They won't do it. They have no confidence in doing it. I tell them no guts, no glory in life. Find ways right. to do it at a fairly substantial level. And once you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it, uh, you basically, it's like riding a bike, I guess. You get right. better at it, and you have a lot of failures when you ride a bike at first. But force yourself to do what you don't want to do. Well, and do you feel that things like that, I mean, that's things that people need to pro keep progressing in the in the maturity level or in their career. I mean, you need to be able, if you want to be a government leader, you're going to be out there speaking to folks. You're going to be in front of an audience. You, have to, you have to be doing that in most instances. There's right. probably no one way. There's probably some people who are very retiring mm -hmm. and shy, that, but they would have to, they might be in, incredibly smart and provide vision and stay behind the scenes or whatnot but most of them do get out there they do share their views they do share their perspectives right but i can say with all candor here 
that most of them, if you looked at when they started doing those things, it was nowhere to the level they can do it years later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And people don't recognize that. Um, when I first uh, worked, for example, with David Walker, mm-hmm. I noticed immediately that he was frankly gifted. Uh, yeah, he's got he, he, he was gifted yeah. really in his ability to get up there because I was used to prepping people and preparing a bunch of points and slides and mm-hmm. I accompanied him to one of his first big presentations as CG for the JFMIP and put together eight or nine pages of notes and it was sent, sent back that he didn't want anything quite as elaborate. So I get it down to a couple of pages of just high level bullet points and we're driving over in the car and he pulls a thing out of his pocket part way over and he asked me a couple questions. I, he starts scribbling on these two pieces of paper and putting some arrows and he got up there and he was tremendous, That's it. And brilliant. Arti- articulate, clear, and doesn't everything, sound like it. Yeah, everything. And, and, and people said to me, that was a tremendous <laughs> speech you wrote. And I said, well, I, he had some <laughs> bullet points and then he scribbled all over it and and that, that was it. Now, that's what he was when he first came in there. Hmm. Well, I saw a decade later when I retired, he was much better, hmm. much better. Even better yeah. He was even better. Hmm. So what people saw today is not what they saw then. And then I would say the man was gifted at doing that. So you're yeah. always getting better and you always have to look for ways to improve and ways to learn. Right. And before I forget yeah. this point, Everybody will have a horrendous manager at some point in time. Sure. A manager that is mean-spirited, a manager that might not be real smart, a manager that might just uh, appall you in the lack of any kind of vision or any kind of anything at all. I found that I learned perhaps more from them. Hmm. More from them. Um, my first several years, I worked for DOD as an auditor, and um, I was treated very well. I was praised and everything else and all my evaluations and all this stuff. And I worked f- for a guy who, there was something wrong with him, really. He was very, very mean, and he, sure. he berated people and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yelled and screamed at him, and it was just really, really bad. Right. And... Um, he had some problems with his own career because of that kind of conduct, and I had then moved on to GAO, and I had moved ahead in my, my, my career, and I saw him at a professional event maybe 15 years later. He came up to me, you probably don't remember me, and I said, well, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I certainly remember you. Right. Um, and he said, well, that was probably really bad, wasn't it, or something like that. And I said, no, I thank you. I thank you greatly, Tom, for the way you treated everybody and what I observed because I learned so much. I learned so much. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but you really helped me more than you would ever imagine hmm. because I saw what not to do and how not to treat, treat people day to day. I believe strongly in the golden rule. I believe very strongly if you are the leader, you take the shot if things don't go swimmingly well all the time. Right. You're, you're, you're the one on top, and if things go real well, you give credit. You don't take the credit, you give the credit. Mm-hmm. And um, I was asked um, one time, what are the things I'm most proud of in my career? And my comment was that I don't believe I've ever yelled at anyone in 50 years or berated them in a way that would not be considered to be the golden rule because I learned what it was like not to be treated well and I was treated better than others by this guy. But you can learn from poor supervisors. You can learn from people that give you no guidance. Hmm. They tell you to do something. You say, well, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do. Well, if you're if you think about it, we'll figure it out. Right. Well, I mean, what's that? Somebody's just yelling at you. They're not really giving you the constructive feedback. Oh yeah. But so you learned how to 
give people feedback in a well, constructive yeah, way. Yeah, well, it's again, it's in, even if you've got a supervisor who's real, real nice, but they're not capable. That's not right. And but so, okay, do you sit back and complain about them all day long? Or do you say, gee, this is an opportunity for me to figure out what to do because right. if I'm going to be on top at some point in time, I've got to figure out what to do then for everybody. Right, right. So for this job, this person says, well, go out and audit X or go out and do Y. So you say, well, what do they mean? You know, I've only been here for three years. What do they mean? And then you kind of ask them and they can't explain it to you. Well, instead of sitting around and complaining about them, you figure it out. And you find out that you can figure out most things. Most people I've worked with in my career are very bright, you know. And uh, it's just a matter of, of looking for what opportunities you have and always doing the best one can do. Well, along those lines of, you know, kind of learning from things, I mean, uh, over the years, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking you must have had mentors, um, and you, you're probably a mentor yourself at this point. So I just kind of want to hear your feedback on mentoring in general. What do you think about it? What's an effective way to, to have a mentoring relationship? I think, first of all, to be a mentor to someone, you have to like people. <laughs> and you have to feel real good about people succeeding. And I found over the years as I've gotten older and older and older that I relish more someone else's success. Right. Um, but you have to like people. You have to want them to do better. And you look at the type of people you work with. And a person can mentor by sitting down and having mentoring sessions and providing advice. Or a person can mentor by taking interest in s someone else and saying, well, this person's a very capable person. Uh, why don't we put them on this? Mm -hmm. And let's stretch them a bit. Give them the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Give them the opportunity. That's a form of mentoring sure. someone. If I look back, again, I mentioned before, I was privileged to work for Elmer Stotts, Chuck Bowser, David Walker. They were all incredibly outstanding people. So I saw that. So examples, basically. I saw that. Mm -hmm. The core values were so high. The integrity was so high. Right. You don't have to agree with every decision someone makes, but do they have the core values? Do they apply the golden rule? Um, are they nice people? Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing that, and you relate to whatever environment that is. Right. I had a, a, an individual one time, I was a GS-12, he was a GS-15, this goes back a gajillion years, and probably at that time a 15 was even higher than it is today, because sure. there were fewer 15s than right. there are today. Right. And I remember him saying to me um, that I would surpass him that he would work for me at some point in time. And um, he's in his 80s now, and I recently called him, found he was still alive. I was sorry I didn't do it, certainly. I thanked him. He said, for what, you know? And I said, well, you know, you really encouraged me. I work for Donald Scandleberry. There's an award in right. Donald's name incredible person. I remember him encouraging me. He was the assistant comptroller general of the United States. Um, and just saying, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, and that encouraged me. And while we didn't sit down and him mentor me day to day, I saw that I was given certain assignments, certain things to do and I saw how he conducted himself. Mm -hmm. Today, um, mentoring uh, is about really seeing for, for me, because I work with lots of people, my job at KPMG, running the Government Institute there, and again, I'm just totally privileged to work there. I mean, one of the reasons I elected to go to that firm was the core values and the people I don't see people ranting and raving. I don't. I see people acting in a highly professional manner. Right. 
all of the partners in charge of the federal advisory practice, the partner in charge of the federal audit practice. I work with the state and local heads of those practices. They are all professionals who conduct themselves in a highly professional manner. And I see mentoring as really providing advice to people and looking for opportunities to tell someone they've done something well. Right. And, and especially if you've seen they have done it better and better. So I said to someone recently, you did a great job in kind of emceeing and managing that panel the other day. I was just very impressed. But what impressed me even more is the amount of growth that I've seen. When you first did them, you did a great job, but you would tend to go rather quickly. Right, moving along. Mm -hmm. You would go quickly here. You were much more confident now. Right. It was much slower. More of a natural rhythm. More too. natural mm -hmm. rhythm as mm -hmm. opposed to, okay, Next blah, 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 right. <laughs> and uh, because you're a little nervous, you know what I mean? Sure. I said, I could really, and I could tell that that made a difference to them. And again, giving back and encouraging others uh, is just very, very key. And the reality is, it's a selfish thing too. If you are the leader, yeah. even if you're not the leader, if you're a leader at another level, it's selfish because the better someone performs, the better y you look as well. Sure. <laughs> and um, in government where people might not be removed quickly if they're not performing, although I've seen some of that in other sectors as well. It's not only the government. Um, you've got what you've got many times, so you want to optimize. But mentoring is very key, but the mentee has to want to develop the relationship, yeah, the one, right. and the mentee has to seek out, and the mentee has to watch what works and what doesn't work. Well, and for you, you know, when you had your mentors, would you say that that was a formal thing or just, kind of, I mean, not really formal, but, or did they realize they were your mentors or were you just kind of observing them and getting, you know, lessons from that? I don't think it was formal. Right. Generally speaking, uh, they, certainly there were some mentorship formal type, type, type of programs. My experience is that they was going to have mixed results. If, if it's a force fit, it can't be a force fit. It's kind of hard, fit. yeah. It's kind of hard. If you're a mentor for so-and-so, but I would say in GAO, they had an SES development program, okay. and you got selected for that, and then you kind of went through, you know, 15 or 18 months of, mm -hmm. of stuff, and you were assigned a mentor. Okay. And I was assigned someone who was a, a, a senior, senior executive in GAO. Mm -hmm. In another unit and I'd seen him in the hallway right I'd heard he was really an outstanding person and uh, so we didn't have that natural relationship but mm -hmm. I thought that that worked out very well because um, he took that role very very seriously and he shared with me advice on how to navigate the politics of life mm. and uh, he was certainly there for me and making sure that I went through that process in a successful manner. Plus, I think it broadened me a bit because I was in the financial group always, mm -hmm. and that was a little different than some of the groups. And uh, I think that, that, was, that was broadening. But, 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 but I think it's, it's really beyond these formal programs sure. and it's, be, it's beyond these formal developing your development plan for the next gajillion years, you know, and you got to be flexible at all times. And, and I think another thing, and I'm probably going on and on on some of this, but I think it's important to recognize that no job's too large for you to do or too small for you to do. And um, I always use this example when speaking to folks. Um, this is when I was working on the Hill when the first version of the CFO Act went out. I got the privilege of enrolling it, meaning the Senators Roth and Glenn presented it to the Senate, and then it was taken to the front, and it was enrolled. So I had the privilege of taking it down to be enrolled. And then I went to a press event, 
And then I went on the Today Show. I didn't go on the Today Show. I went with Senator Rolf to the Today Show, mm -hmm. to the shooting. That was pretty heady stuff, okay? Well, we had a markup on the bill the following day. And when you have a markup, you've got these books that each senator has, and you've got various things in these books, and it's a lot of cut, cutting and pasting, Xeroxing, punching the holes, all that stuff, organizing the materials. Well, the staff on the Hill worked incredibly hard. It was incredible pace on the Hill, incredible right. pace. And I was up all night, Xeroxing, cutting and pasting, so to speak, putting these books together with the senators' names on the books, with the stuff organized with tabs, everything else. Very perfunctory job, very perfunctory job. And um, certainly not at the level that I was at in life. I was a senior executive, but it was what needed to be done. And um, I think that's very, very important. There's no job too big for you or too small for you. I remember when I was when I was working um, on the Hill as well as when I was working in GAO, being asked to go over and pinch hit for someone to give a talk before a group. Right. I remember having to meet with a bunch of bankers. It was a meeting room in Georgetown. It was like the boardroom of a big investment company. And um, I didn't know that much about topic. I knew something about it, but it wasn't an area where I had a lot of knowledge in, and I was asked to pinch it. I was given nothing, because the other person didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. And I asked, well, when? And they said at noon. And this is like 1045. Right. <laughs> and I had to get over there, and to me, you know, it probably wasn't my greatest of all time, but I got through it. Yeah. And so you've got to be be prepared to try. You've got to be prepared to to do the best one can always. Right. Um, well, let me just have one more question for yeah. you here. Um, I think a lot of folks also early on in their career struggle with, you know, should I specialize in something or should I know a little bit about everything or, you know, should I be more of a theoretical thinker, visionary thinker? I mean, what have you seen in your career? I mean, what would you recommend to folks? I think to a certain extent, you want to be all of the above. Mm -hmm. I think that having knowledge of your field is very important. Mm -hmm. If all you have is really a tremendous amount of knowledge, you can be successful doing that if you've got the right job, if you're setting a standard or you're doing so-and-so. I, I, but I think that that can be limiting to people. I've told people, well, your path on just being a technical specialist would be X. Right. However, if you're a technical specialist and you also have got a lot of vision and you can manage people and you can motivate people, then that is a little higher level. I was always impressed with the comment that the Hall of Fame hockey player. I'm not a big hockey fan, although I congratulate the Caps. I watched that, and right. that was a tremendous victory. Um, Wayne Gretzky said, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going to be. And a lot of people spend their lives skating to where, or trying to skate to where the puck is. And when they get there, the puck is someplace else. And that's the challenge financial managers have. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about complying to the letter of every requirement today. It's positioning yourself for what you're really expected to do going forward, which right. in today's environment of high-tech high and intelligent automation and everything else is not what you were doing yesterday or even going to do tomorrow. It's much different. Right. Those things are always coming. Robotics yeah. is coming, you know, automation, more well, automation. It's basically here, and it's, it's going to be here in, in a much greater extent. Right. And it can solve a lot of problems if you do it correctly. Uh, people will say, well, it's going to replace people. Well, to a certain extent, extent, it'll right. perhaps replace jobs you don't need to do anymore. But if you look at when I began work in 19... 68, there was not an adding machine with a tape. Hmm. 
last night, the Northern Virginia chapter of AGAs um, celebrated its 50th anniversary. I was at this gala event. It was very nice. And they had this tremendous cake, and it had, you know, ledgers around the side of it, and it had a, a little um, calculator on top right. with a tape coming out with numbers. It was it was just a magnificent cake, <laughs> but it was actually not a correct cake because, <laughs> years old there. because you didn't have something like, like that in 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, you had filing cabinets with tons of stuff. You had no such thing as a computer. You had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clerk typists in these massive typing pools. Hmm. And a computer wasn't even in science fiction <laughs> magazines. Now, you look at that today, someone would look at that today, and they'd say, well, how did they operate? And I'd say, we operated very poorly, probably. Um, people 30, 40, 50 years from now will look back at today as, well, that's a stone age. Exactly. He or she must be making that up. That couldn't possibly be the way it is. And I think that, um, and again, everybody's got their own niche of what their passion is, but I think it's beyond helpful to be able to see things in a multi-dimensional way, to be able to see possibilities, to read about things you don't know much about and appreciate they represent change. Mm -hmm. I believe fervently that intelligent automation and the way we're going with all this is beyond needed and will be sort of a saver for a lot of government administrative tasks, which are not going to get more funding going forward. They're going to get less and less. Um, I was very um, focused on a recent article I read that said that you know that um, Big Blue, that IBM computer, defeated Gary Kasparov, who was the world champion Mm -hmm. uh, chess player. Right. uh, But they've had cases where you've had these supercomputers play each other. And they found on a consistent basis, when a supercomputer is matched with a person, that one always wins over another supercomputer. Hmm. So big blue with a top drawer player, chess player, will beat big blue without it Right. every time. So it changes what a person does. It also changes what a person has to know and the skill level they have to have. So if you want to be successful and you're, let's say, 25 years old or even 35 or 45 years old, you have to skate to where the puck is going to be and you have to prepare yourself to operate in a different world or your skill set might not be something people will be looking for. So I think in the financial management community, is going to, people are going to have to think a, a lot harder. I'd be perfectly honest about it. I'm not sure that I would have had the same level of success in an environment where I had to understand every nuance of a machine right. and um, think in that manner or have, have machines that can take every possibility and analyze it in a split second. I look back at work that my firm has done, and others have done the same thing, where an operation had a very simple reconciliation process, where they had to combine certain things and report out, and they were using like 40, 60 hours a week, you know, of staff time doing that. And they came and said, is there a simpler way to do it? We don't really have the resources to spend that amount of time to, to do that and then to observe someone developing a bot that does the same job in something like 32 minutes or something like that. Right. That is a one-time expense and does it more accurately than yeah. a person exactly. does it. Why would you do it? Um, and the same as 
if you walked into an organization today and they had no computers, they had, had typing pools that filled a floor, exactly. you would say, why are they doing that? So, I mean, thinking always about the fact that I want to be relevant, I want to un understand, and learning more than you have to learn. I, I think, you know, I can't say that enough. Uh, uh, I'm kind of astounded sometimes that people don't read. And I'm not talking about sitting there reading for hours and hours and hours and hours to write. I will acknowledge that in my 45 years, wherever it is, I've been a CPA that I haven't exactly poured through the Journal of Accountancy when I got it, okay? Sure. <laughs> and I haven't kept up with every little standard and every little nuance of those standards, but yeah. people should be reading about what are the best business yeah. practices in government right. and the, in the private sector. Right. So you want to be multidimensional, you want to be current, you want to understand what is going to be important in your environment, and most of all, you want to have a passion no matter what it is you're you're doing, if um, you're stocking shelves, um, and that's what you do, um, that's what you are. You want to be a good one, be a good one. at doing <laughs> that. Whatever it is, you want to have a passion. You want to have a higher purpose. You want to treat people with respect day to day. Integrity is key to our profession. And, um, you know, it's not that hard. And some are going to make it. Oh, I will say one other thing. I know I kind of tend to ramble on in some of this. Success is not necessarily what level one gets to. Hmm. People have asked me before, and I said, well, I don't know what success means in that respect. A person can be successful in their life. Right. By helping others, they might yeah. not go to the highest level in their profession. Maybe there are other things, their family or charity or whatever they're doing. You can be successful in helping others. I, I, you read an article about people that, that do such kind things for people, such mm -hmm. selfless things for people. And sometimes when I read those those things, I kind of... I'm ashamed I've never done much of that for people, you know? Right. I mean, they, every last dime they have or every waking hour, they're helping others out. Yeah. That can be success, whatever. Absolutely. Success is what you want it to be in life, right. and uh, it's not always getting to a certain grade or a certain level. And because a person's at whatever level they're at, high or low, it doesn't mean there's any less or more value. You treat them all the same, and they're no different, really. I. I never expect to be treated differently, although I was from time to time to time. But um, again, those are kind of some of my thoughts. It's been a real, real pleasure to, to share those with you today. Yes. I hope there are some small help to people. Uh, absolutely. No, I appreciate very much for you joining our podcast today. And uh, again, this was great. I really learned a lot. I think our listeners will enjoy it as well. Okay. Right. Have a great day. Thank you. Well, that's our podcast hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes on agacgfm.org. You can also subscribe via iTunes and Google Play. We'll have several more podcasts coming up in July. We hope you will tune in and hope to see you also at the AGA PDT in Orlando. Until then, this is Paul Marshall signing off.